Well, amen. Let's take our Bibles together this morning and let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter number 17, please. The 17th chapter in John's Gospel is where we'll find our text this morning as we continue our series through some of the great chapters of the Bible. John, chapter number 17 is where we'll land together today. John, chapter number 17. It was interesting that uh, Brother Luke, in his uh, scripture reading at the beginning of the service, took us to John 14 as uh, what is stated in John 14 and what takes place in John 17 are very closely related, and uh, we did not discuss that beforehand. Lord led him there, the Lord led us here, and, uh, and I suppose we can maybe see a little bit of that connection. John chapter number 17, if you'll look there, in verse number 1, we'll begin reading on verse, in verse number 1, and we'll read down just a little ways through this uh, particular chapter as we begin. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll preach through the entire chapter, Lord willing, by the time that we're uh, done here this morning. The Bible says in verse number one, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. The title of the message this morning is Christ's Prayer in the Upper Room. Christ's Prayer in the Upper Room. They they say that you can learn a lot about an individual, about someone, by listening to them pray. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about what that communicates by being near to someone when they pray? Through prayer, you can learn and you can hear about what is important to an individual. You can learn about what it is that they're burdened about. You can maybe get a glimpse at what it is that they long for in life, maybe some of their priorities and some of their goals or some of their most inner desires. In the 17th chapter of John, we, we, are, we are given a, we're given a glimpse, we're, we're ushered into the very upper room where Christ shared his last uh, supper with his disciples, and, and, uh, and in that room we discover he is praying. What's significant about this particular prayer is that it's just a few short hours before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just a few short hours before his torture at the hand of the Romans as well as the Jewish high priests and religious leaders. Just a few short hours before he would be nailed to an old rugged cross where he would suffer the same cross that we sung about this morning. All of this, all of this is just a few short hours away and he knew it. He knew all of these things were set to transpire. He knew that this is the reason for why he had come. And so this prayer is extremely significant in this particular moment. As we said a moment ago, if hearing an individual pray 
reveals to us a great deal about that person. In other words, by listening to them pray, we can learn a lot about them as an individual and what is important to them and, and, and where they're wanting to go in life and what it is that they're burdened about. Let me ask you this question. If, if that is true, then what do you suppose, what do you suppose we are, what, what is, supposed, is revealed to us by hearing someone pray in the midst of their most agonizing trial in life? In other words, it'd be one thing to sit down with someone and have a prayer meeting and let's just pray together and both of us are enjoying life and things are going well. But imagine you, you go into someone's home and they've just been told you have stage four cancer. Or they've just been told you've lost your job and you no longer have a place to work and no longer have a steady income coming in. Or they've just been told your family member or your close friend has passed and they've died. And, and, and then to listen to them pray in that hour, don't you suppose that that might even give us a little bit more insight or a little bit more detail into them as an individual as well? Many people refer to the prayers that are offered in Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11 as the Lord's Prayer. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked too much on that, but I, I want to say that in reality, what is recorded for us in John chapter number 17, to me, this is really the Lord's Prayer. And here's, here's why. In Luke 11, the Lord was responding to the request of his disciples who were asking him, Lord, teach us to pray. In Matthew 6, what is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer there, that's included in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is preaching and he's teaching some principles to people. So in both instances, Matthew 6 and Luke 11, Jesus is not so much praying, praying as he is teaching us how to pray. How, how do we know that? Well, we know that because, um, because when Jesus gave that, that model prayer that is oftentimes referred to the, as the Lord's Prayer. In that, he, he asked for forgiveness. Do you remember that? He, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, well here's how we know that's not Jesus really praying. Jesus had no sins. He had no debts. Jesus was not, was not praying, he was showing us, he was modeling for us some elements that should be in our prayers as we, as we pray and bring our burdens and needs to the Lord. But here in John chapter number 17, this is really, this is really Christ pouring out his heart to his Father in prayer without, a, without any doubt whatsoever. Now the Lord's prayer, I believe, is really found in our text. And I believe because it is a... Uh, a glimpse into the Lord's prayer life and the way that he prayed, I believe because of that, it becomes one of the great, great chapters in our Bible. The prayer is defined as a solemn address to the supreme being, to God, consisting of these elements, adoration, confession of our sins, supplication for mercy and forgiveness, intercession for blessing on others, and thanksgiving, or an expression of gratitude to God for his mercies and benefits. Look at that definition again. This is what prayer is. Your prayers, my prayers ought to feature these elements. This is what we ought to be, be doing when we come before the Lord. We ought to come before him and we ought to adore him. We ought to praise him. We ought to love on him just a little bit. How long has it been since you told the Lord how much you loved him? And since you spent some time in healthy adoration to the Lord, we love so many things that are of so, such insignificant value, don't we? 
Oh, we love material possessions. We love uh, excursions and experiences. And, 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 and we, love, you know, we love this world and some of the things that are part of this world. But I want you to know something. I think God deserves some of our love as well. I think we ought to tell him how much we love him. And we ought to express our adoration. Of him. And then we move on and we go to confession of our sins. When was the last time that you confessed your sins to the Lord? If you're anything like me, you have lots to confess on a daily basis. The truth of the matter is, I probably, in my own prayer life, I probably could spend more time confessing sins than just about any other thing. Confession of our sins, and then there's supplication for mercy and forgiveness. Then there's intercession for blessing upon others in which we're praying for other people. And then there's thanksgiving or expression of gratitude to God for his mercies and benefits. I've left this up a little bit longer for some of you because I think maybe it would be helpful. I think it's been helpful for me just to revisit this definition and to see it because sometimes we, we get a little, we get a little um, sidetracked in our prayers, don't we? Sometimes these elements are nowhere to be found. We go to the Lord and we're constantly talking about, well, I need this and I want this and it sure be nice to have that. And yet, if we never spend any time adoring the Lord and we never spend any time confessing our sins and we never spend any time expressing our gratitude to the Lord, or we never spend any time praying for others, how, how effective do you suppose your prayer life is going to be? I, I myself am, am convicted and I am convinced that my greatest area of need for growth in my own personal life is in this spiritual discipline of prayer. The hymn writer Joseph M. Scriven wrote these words in his familiar hymn, Rock of Ages. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Evangelist D.L. Moody once said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. What a difference, what a difference it would make in our world, in our homes, and in our churches if we simply learned how to pray. I want us to consider as we look at Christ's prayer in the upper room, I want us to consider what was important to him. In these moments so near his suffering, his agony, and his death, what was on his mind? I believe that these things should be, as a a result of us finding that they were important to him, I believe these things should be elevated in importance in our own lives, considering they were on his heart, and we have evidence that he prayed for these things as well. In other words, if he prayed for them, shouldn't you and I pray for them as well? And shouldn't we strive to, to live out the things that he prayed for here in this particular prayer? What were the three great petitions or requests that Christ prayed for on this night so long ago? I want to identify them to you in our text. I want you to see them. You may even have a handout that is there in your bulletin in which you can follow along and fill in some of the blanks. I hope that you will. Number one, we discover in our text that he prayed, Jesus prayed, that he would be glorified through the coming trial. Jesus prayed in the first seven to eight verses of this text, or in the beginning of this prayer, Jesus prayed that he would be glorified through the trial that was coming just a few short hours down the, down the line. Look, if you would, in verse number one. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. That, 
That phrase should jump off the page at us. The hour is come. What do you suppose he meant by that? The hour is come. There were many hours that comprised the life of Christ. He lived more than 33 years on this earth. In 33 years' time, did you know that there are 289,080 hours that pass by? That's in 33 years. 33 years, there are 289,000 hours that come and that go. Jesus here is not talking about a specific 60-minute period when he referenced this hour. In other words, Jesus is not saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to I'm gonna have to suffer here for 60 minutes. You and, I, you and I know that his suffering lasted much longer than 60 minutes. So what do you suppose he means when he says the hour is come? Here's what I believe he was referring to. I believe he was speaking. He was speaking of the, the appointed time or the appointed season that he and his father had agreed upon going all the way back even before the foundation of the world. You see, we read of what happens there in the Garden of Eden and we read of the first mention of the gospel there in Genesis. Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 15 for those who have studied theology that's oftentimes referred to as the proto-evangelium or the the prototype of the gospel the first mention of the gospel but I want you to know something Jesus Christ and God the Father did not come to that agreement in the garden of Eden that he would suffer for the sins of the whole world no the Bible tells us that he was slain before the foundation of the whole world So when Jesus said, the hour is come, he was referencing, listen, every every element, every part of human history is pointing to this moment, and Jesus knew it. He knew that his hour had come. He would suffer under the weight of the sin of the whole world. In this hour, Christ would be tortured. He would be beaten physically. He would be humiliated and mocked in a public manner. He would be crucified and experience death for every man. God the Father would would forsake him and would turn his back on him because of the sin debt that he bore. And his prayer, here, listen, his prayer was that if he must endure such suffering, at the very least, may it result in him being glorified. In other words, he, he said, Lord, if... If I have to go through with this, and I must, this is the only way, then at the very least, as I emerge from this, may it produce honor and glory for your sake and for your name. I want us to consider a couple of things as we read through this beginning element of this prayer. And I want you to know, first of all, this, that when a lost sinner is converted, Christ is glorified. When a lost sinner is converted, when that person comes to Christ and places their faith and trust in him and repents of their sin, when that happens, listen, Christ is glorified every single time because of what Christ suffered and endured. Eternal life is made available to sinful men. Look in verse number two, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. How does someone someone come to faith in Christ? 
when that wicked sinner is introduced to the gospel and they're convicted of their sin and they turn from their sinful ways and they believe on Jesus Christ whom God the Father sent to be the propitiation or be the payment for our sins. At that moment, listen, at that moment, eternal life is transacted. We don't get eternal life someday. I have it right now. The Bible tells me in John 3, 36 that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You know what that means? That means that we have it this very moment. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I'm thankful for that. Paul put it this way. Paul said, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in other words, for a, for a true believer, there's never a moment, there is never a moment when you and I experience actual death. Because death is separation. So, so when, we, when we cross the, 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 the river, so to speak, of, of physical death, guess what happens? In that very moment, in that very moment, we take our next breath in a celestial city, a place known as the Father's house, a place known as heaven or paradise. Isn't that comforting to think about? That Jesus, Jesus gives, gives unto us eternal life, and he says this in John chapter number 10, and they shall never perish. Never. Never. What a hope. What a promise. And when someone is granted eternal life by believing, by the way, there's only one way to get eternal life. There's not an abundance of ways. There's not many ways. There's only one way to get eternal life. And that is by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that sinful men, listen, sinful men made righteous because they believe on Christ's finished work. And there's a reference to his finished work in verse number four. Did you see it? He says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Listen, when you and I, when we, we as sinful men and sinful women, that's what we are. Every last one of us, we dress up really nice on Sunday. And we come to church, we comb our hair, we shave our faces, we, we put our makeup on. Well, I didn't put my makeup on, but some of you did. Some of you didn't shave your face, but I did, right? I mean, I... Some of you maybe should have, I don't know, but, but we come to the Lord's house and we're dressed up and we look nice and everything looks good. But listen, all we're doing is we're masking, we're masking the real true condition of ourselves, aren't we? Because we're sinners, every last one of us. But listen, listen, if you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no longer a sinner. You have been justified. You've, you've been made righteous through the blood of Christ and through the atonement of Christ where he suffered for you on the cross. When you believe on Christ's finished work on the cross, listen, when that happened, God gave you eternal life. And when that takes place, listen, that brings great glory to Christ Jesus. Notice, not only does a lost sinner being converted bring glory to Christ, but number two, when a believer keeps God's word, Christ is also glorified. Now, every last one of us in this room, the hundreds of people in this room, every last one of us are in one of these two places. In other words, we are either, we are either in need of being converted, we're a lost sinner, and we've not yet been found, or, or we are a believer who needs to keep God's word. So did you know, did you know that depending on what you do with the message today, you, you can be an answer to Christ's prayer here in the upper room? I'll let that sink in for a moment. If you're lost... He's praying that you'll, you'll be saved so that he can receive glory. If you're saved, he's praying that you'll keep God's word so that he can receive glory. That's what it's all about. Look at verse number five. 
And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they, ha- they have kept thy word. You know, those who are saved and converted, they bring glory to Christ, not just in their conversion, but they bring, bring glory to Christ when there is consistent and faithful obedience and adherence to God's word. Many elevate their own philosophy, their own teaching, their own opinions, their own wisdom above God's world. Listen for key phrases like this. Well, I know what the Bible says, but... Or, or maybe, maybe something like this. Well, you know, that was, that was written a long time ago. And things are different today than they were back then. When, when you hear someone repeat a phrase like that, just let that be sort of a, sort of a warning sign. Something, something probably not true is getting ready to come out of their mouth. Because God's word never changes. God, God, doesn't, God doesn't give us a pass from obeying and keeping his word just because it's 2022. I'm under every, every bit as much obligation to obey God's word and to keep God's word as his own disciples were. And Jesus says about his disciples, said, Lord, they have kept thy word. They have done what I have called them to do. Can I say that when we, when we elevate our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our philosophies above God's word, listen, that takes us our own way and, and, and that's never, never a good thing. When this happens, Christ is not glorified. His cause is not advanced. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're glorified or our cause is advanced, but it's certainly not, it's not his cause and, and his advancement is, is what is taking place. No, when an individual is faithful and obedient to keep God's word, at that point, Christ is glorified. So here's what I want to say this morning to our church family. Listen, you can glorify Christ with your life today. You can. Now think about that for a moment. You and I can live for an eternal purpose today. How how can we do that? Well, we do that by winning lost sinners to Jesus Christ, by preaching the gospel to them and and trying uh, trying to help them to understand their need, their great need for salvation. But we can also glorify Christ through our own personal faithfulness and adherence to his word. Listen, he prayed that he would be glorified in these things. Therefore, they should be a huge priority for us. And we ought, to, we ought to spend a moment or two in this service, we ought to ask this question, is my life bringing Christ glory? You ought to ask that question. And if it's not, then you ought to, then you ought to determine, hey, listen, it's, things are gonna be different from here on out. For a long time, I've lived for my own cause and for my own advancement and for my own self, but I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to bring glory to Christ with my life. How can I do that? I can do that by, by, by if I'm not saved, by, by being saved, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him and trusting in his name, and then I can also do that by faithful adherence, by keeping his word. In other words, if the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. So we see that he prayed that he would be glorified through this coming trial. Many of you perhaps have been through trials. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial right now. And in those moments, it's never comfortable, is it? It's never enjoyable. It's not something that we long for. It's not something that we welcome necessarily into our lives. But listen, you and I must know that we can't control when trials come, what the trials are. We can't even control how we're going to emerge out of this trial. You can't control those things. But here's what, you, here's what you can do. Here's what you should do. You should, in the trial, you should say, Lord, it's here. 
I'm in it. I can't get out of it. So Lord, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that you would be glorified in this trial. Just as Jesus prayed, the hour is come. Some of you, you are in an hour right now. Not a physical 60-minute period, but you're in an hour of intense agony and suffering and trial. And the prayer ought to be, Lord, the hour has come. Lord, glorify yourself in this hour. It's not about me receiving glory. It's about God receiving glory in this trial. And so he prayed that he would, re- be re- he would receive glory in this coming trial. But notice, secondly, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for his disciples. In verses 9 to 19, we find Jesus praying for the men that were there in the room. There's something about being in a room with someone and they pray for you, isn't there? To hear your name called out in prayer. Can you imagine what this must have been like for his disciples, for Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior? To literally be calling their names out in prayer and to be praying specifically for them. You know that Christ went through periods in which he enjoyed immense popularity and then he was followed by huge crowds. The Bible often refers to them as multitudes. We, we don't often get a, 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 an actual number on those things, but we do know that there were times in which he had crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 at a time. And in both of those instances, he, he fed them physical nourishment as well as spiritual nourishment through his teaching and through the miracles that he did. So, so we know that multitudes, in many times, probably refers to in the thousands of people that followed him. However, however on, on this night, on this night, the thousands were nowhere to be found. No, on this night, he's surrounded by, by just those who, who were closest to him. Uh, he, would, he would leave behind him a church with 120 members upon his ascension. The Bible tells us, Acts 1.15 They were all gathered together, and the number was about 120. So certainly, while there were times in which Christ enjoyed immense popularity and and, and multitudes following him, by by and large, when you come to the end of his ministry, he's, he's primarily, he's got a church, he's got a group of about 120 people, a group much smaller than than those that are gathered in this room here this morning. This is what he left behind. His closest followers are even smaller than that. You see, Jesus had this understanding that, that, that leadership, you know, you can only impact so many people at a time. I mean, it really impact people at a time. And so Jesus, he, he had multitudes of followers, but that whittled down eventually to his church of 120. And even that church of 120 is whittled down to, to, to really the 12. And we know that one of the 12 betrayed and abandoned him. According to John 17, even in verse number 12, he talks about that. He said, he says in this prayer, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou hast gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So I'm trying to get you to understand who he's praying for here. He's praying specifically, I believe specifically, he's praying for the number that are in that room. At this point, at this point, it's just 11. The 12th has abandoned them, he's left. And Christ took the time to pray for these disciples. And here's why. Because he knew, he knew what lay in front of them. They were going to be given the responsibility of spreading the gospel in the face of intense persecution in a, in a very hostile world. And how it must have blessed them to hear him pray for them. I want to call, I want to call to your attention several of the requests that he prayed over them. You will not find... You will not find him praying for Peter's mother-in-law's health. 
You won't find him, you won't find him praying for, you know, Andrew's father's, you know, financial prosperity. There's no mention of surgeries or procedures or medical issues here. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for those things. I think we should. But I want you to consider that on this night, he prays for something much, much more personal and, and, and much, really even much more important than these things. Notice, notice the prayer requests he prayed over his disciples. First of all, he prayed for them to be unified in verse number 11. Would you look at verse number 11? The Bible says, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. He knew the nature of humanity, didn't he? He knew, that, he knew that, you know, it's not hard. It's not hard to envision at some point these men dividing over really insignificant matters. It, it wasn't hard for him to imagine these men arguing and warring over who was going to be the supreme leader. Well, I'm the, I, I'm the greatest leader among the disciples. Uh, he, 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 he didn't have a hard time imagining that perhaps these men would war amongst themselves. Here's why. Because he had seen some evidence of these things already. And John, I'm assuming Mark chapter number 10, while in the presence of all of the disciples gathered there, James and John's mother came to Jesus and, and, and she had a request of him. She said, she said, Lord, would you grant that my sons would, would sit one on the right hand and one on the left in your kingdom? And, and Jesus had a little conversation with her. But you'll find a little bit later in the text, you'll find that the disciples are sort of annoyed. They're annoyed. I mean, come on, who is, who is James and John to request this and to uh, desire this? Uh, how, how, dare, uh, how dare she, uh, she come to them and, and, and ask this question? And, and, and so there's this war, there's this, 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 this fight that's going on among them. And so Jesus understood, listen, there will be temptations in the days to come after my ascension in which these, these men could potentially be pulled apart. And so you know what he prayed? He prayed that they would be one. Can I just be real honest with you? There are also temptations in our day and age, in our world, that we would pull apart from one another and that we would war with one another, even here in this congregation, over silly things, over insignificant things. She looked at me funny. They sat in my seat. Now, I just want to let you in on a little secret. I want to let you, if you want your own seat, if you want your own seat at the Cleveland Baptist Church, I'll tell you where to go. If you want your own seat at any church, you come down to the front. I don't ever hear anybody that sits in the front say, somebody took my seat. It's all you people in the back. Under the balcony, in the balcony. You know, you're gone for a few weeks. Your seat is likely to be gone. But there's always plenty of seats down front, right? But we fight about silly things. I didn't like, I didn't like the way he was dressed. I didn't like the way she looked. I, I, I didn't like that song that so-and-so sang. You know, uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't greet me today like they normally do. I wonder about this and I wonder about that. Let me just, let me just tell you something. That, that, that's silliness. That's silliness. Now, if you want to come to me and you want to tell me that somebody is teaching something that is not in line with this book, well, we'll have, let's have a conversation. But if you want to come to me and you want to start picking apart somebody's personality or, or, or some, somebody's preference that, that you don't appreciate, and yet the Bible does not necessarily speak clearly on that subject. I, I'm just saying, listen, you're not, you're not fulfilling Christ's prayer. Christ prayed that we would be one. He prayed that they'd be unified. No, secondly, he prayed that they might be filled with his joy. 
Would you look at verse number 13? And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This past week I had an opportunity to do a little bit of traveling. Took one of my daughters with me and we flew out to California. I was preaching in a Bible college out there on Friday. And, and so looking ahead, I, I thought, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to spend a little bit of time with this one. And so, and so I made plans to take her to Disneyland. Now, you know, Disneyland is the, it's, it's so-called the happiest place on earth. Don't believe it, not for a single second. <laughs> in Disneyland, people like to wear matching shirts. My daughter and I did not wear matching shirts, I can assure you of that. Some of the shirts, they'll say things like, you know, greatest day ever. I saw one guy hop in line. I really liked his shirt. It said, most expensive day ever, and I wholeheartedly agree. But don't, don't believe that Disneyland's the happiest place on earth. It is not. It is not. I, I saw people arguing with each other, and I saw little babies crying and screaming, and People not getting what they want and people having to wait in line way too long than they should and people hot and tired and weary and people spending a whole lot of money. And I just want you to know something. That is, in some respects, is a microcosm of life because, listen, listen, pleasures will never make you happy. Pleasures will never fulfill your joy. Oh, they, they, may, they may provide a spark for just a, for just a brief moment, but, but listen, those things can never make you truly happy. The only thing that can make you truly filled with joy is Jesus Christ. He's it. We look around our world, we wonder why is there so much depression? And why is there so much discouragement and frustration and agony? Why so much of this and why so much of that? I'm here to tell you that the reason for these things, the reason for these things is because people don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Now this night and the next few days will be filled with fear and sorrow. There's no doubt about it. In this, in this room on this particular night, the, the mood is not, a, is not a mood filled with smiles and laughter and much joy. No, no rather it is a, it is a mood that is, that is filled with fear and sorrow. Uh, there's an overwhelming sense of what is to come. But listen, listen, don't, don't lose sight of this. We know the rest of the story. They didn't know the rest of the story at this point in time except for Christ. But can I say this? Listen, Jesus knew joy was on the horizon. As far as we know, it's, it's Wednesday, maybe Thursday, depending on what day you believe Christ was crucified. And Jesus is getting ready to suffer. And he suffer, he will suffer greatly more than any man. He is going to die. They're going to bury him. And there's going to be much agony. There's going to be much suffering. There's going to be much difficulty in this particular moment. But the day is coming. The day is coming. Sunday morning is not far away. And when Jesus emerges from that grave, when he rises from the dead, he at that point will hold power over death and over the grave. This joy, listen, this joy that would come to them in that moment, it would remain with them for the rest of their lives. They would have, they would truly have his joy fulfilled in them. Notice thirdly, he prayed that they would be kept from evil. These are things he's praying for his disciples, that they would be kept from evil. Would you look in verse number 15? I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. You know, there are two ways to be kept from evil. The, two, the only two ways that I can think of to be kept from evil, number one, Number one is for evil to be completely removed from us so that we don't see it, you know, so that we don't hear it, so that we're not around it. And you know as well as I do that living on this earth, living in this planet, that's never going to happen. 
Because evil's everywhere. It is everywhere. The only other way, the only other way to be kept from evil is to not indulge in it or not yield to it. Though they would be left in this place, Christ is praying for them that they not resemble or that they not bear the stains of this place. He longed for them to be in this world. He says, it's, it's not time for them. It's not possible. It's not right for them to be removed from this world. Their presence needs to be here. But he's praying, Lord, keep them free from participation in the world's vices. That's what he's praying for. I pray the same thing for you. The same thing for me. We ought to pray the same thing. Lord, Lord, lead us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Finally, he prayed that they would be sanctified. In verse number 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctified, it means to make holy, to be purified or consecrated. Christ longed for his disciples to live pure and holy lives. I said the only way to live this kind of life according to what he says in verse number 17, is to do it through God's word. This book is the purifying agent. The Bible says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? The answer is given in that same verse, Psalm 119.9, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Do you find your life is a little bit more dirty than you wish it were? Are there there some things that you're struggling with that you just can't seem to get victory over? Can I make a recommendation to you? Can I make the recommendation that you get in this book? That you be sanctified through God's truth. And he says, what is, what is that truth? Thy word is truth. This book, this book is the only thing I know that has the ability to clean up your life. Only thing I know that has the ability to set you on the right path and keep you going in that path and in that direction. You make, you make much in your life of this book and I believe God will use you in a tremendous way. But when we ignore this book, when we close this book, we allow it to attract lots of dust except for the days that we come to church, and we don't live by this book, and we think we know better than this book, that's when life has problems. You know, the people that come to my office for counsel, many times, by their own admittance, it's because they've gotten away from God's word, and they've gotten away from the God of the Bible. You stay close to this book, and you stay close to the God of this book, and you'll be just fine. He prayed that they be sanctified. Can I say that Christ's prayer for his disciples at that moment still applies to us today? If you're a believer, then you should be a disciple, right? What does the word disciple mean? It means learner or follower. Christ's disciples are identified by these things. They're identified by their unity. They're identified by their joy. You you do know this, right? That Christians, Christians ought to be some of the happiest people around. Sadly, many times they're not. Sometimes Christians are some of the grumpiest people I know. You're chuckling a little bit. You know that to be true, don't you? Put a smile on your face. What, what are you so long-faced about? You know where you're going someday, don't you? Doesn't the Holy Spirit of God live within you? Aren't your sins forgiven? That ought to be enough to help us to put a smile on our face and to fill our hearts with joy. Christians should be known and identified not just by their unity and joy, but by their purity, their abstinence from the things of this world, and they should be known by their holiness, their sanctification. They're being set apart or purified by God. Notice, thirdly, he has one final prayer request. This one is extremely personal. I want you to notice with me. Not only does he pray that he would receive glory in this coming trial, he prays for the disciples, the 11 that are in that room that very night. But don't, don't forget this. 
On that night so long ago, Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed for me. Would you look with me in verse number 20? Neither pray I for these alone. I don't know if he did this, but I'm imagining that maybe his eyes are closed. The Bible says he looked up to heaven, so maybe his eyes were open. Perhaps he's praying and he's talking to God. When he said, neither pray I for these alone, perhaps he used his finger and he pointed at some of them. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not just praying for the 11 that are in this room. Well, then who else is he praying for? Well, let's continue reading. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, now if you understand language, you understand the, the people that he's praying for, they have not yet believed. Because he's saying they're going to believe. They shall believe. But at this point in time, as, as things are, are currently constituted, they have not yet believed. Here's what I believe. I believe he's, he's, praying, he's praying for every believer who is going to believe in him. Because listen, every believer who's going to believe in him will do so through the witness and through the word of God. And who did God give his word through? He gave it through his disciples. He gave it through his apostles. The, the authors of Scripture, the human authors of Scripture are them. Uh, he, would, he would grow his church through the preaching and through the teaching and even through some of the miracle working ability. And can I say that, listen, you and I have the gospel today. We have faith today because the disciples were faithful to do what God called them to do. So therefore, listen, he's praying for you. And he's praying for me. He's praying for us. Not just those in the room. He's praying for those who would be saved as a result of the work that his disciples were going to do. So what did he pray for us? Three things. Notice them very quickly. First of all, he prayed that we would be one. Look in verse 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You know, unity is a significant theme in Christ's prayer, isn't it? As Christ's followers, we are to reflect the unity that we find between him and his father. See, here's what's interesting about that. There is a subjection here. There is a submission here, even though there doesn't need to be one. Now consider Philippians chapter number two. We don't have time to turn there, but let me just remind you what the Bible says there. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So Jesus willingly humbled himself. The Bible says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, what Jesus, you know why Jesus did that? Jesus did that so that he could model for us what it should look like down here as well. In other words, there is, there is submission that oftentimes needs to be found to one another in a local church context. Or how about in the home and in the family? There's submission that we submit to our Father in heaven, that we submit to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But can I say there's submission in the home, the wife submits to the husband, the children submit to mom and dad. There's submission in the church, we submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. That the the pastor submits to the church members and the church member submits to the pastor. We all submit to the Lord. And he prayed, listen, he prayed that we would be one. And you know what happens? We're not one when we're warring with one another when we're fighting with one another, when we want our way and we want to criticize you for doing your way or doing your thing, at that moment, listen, there's no oneness. When that happens, listen, God is not glorified and Christ's prayer is not answered, it is not fulfilled. 
Christ humbled himself to be under his father's authority so that even though, even though he was an equal, can you and I not do similarly? You might be asked at some point to submit yourself under someone. You might think to yourself, well, I know, I know just as much as they do. You know, Jesus could have said that. I mean, that's what, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery, he's saying, I'm, I'm just as powerful and just as great as you are. We're the same. We're co-equal, co-existent. And yet, what did he do? He took upon him the form of a servant. For the, for the sake of modeling that out and for the sake of unity, there was an order, a divine order that was established. And can I say something that God still expects that divine order in our lives? Sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. But God expects, listen, God expects that there be unity, that we be one. Notice, secondly, he prayed that through us, through you and me, he prayed that the world would believe on him. Would you look in verse number 21? That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Look in verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Do you you know what he's saying here? He's saying that this idea of unity is so far out there in this world, knowing, knowing the nature of humanity, he says when a, when a world beholds a church, a group of people that like each other, that can be in the same room and get along with each other, can defer to one another, can let somebody else's preference maybe take the center stage, hey, that's no big deal. I don't know that I would necessarily do it that way or I don't necessarily know that I prefer that as much, but you know what, if that's the way that you wanna do it and there's no, there's no biblical reason why it shouldn't be done that way, then, then so be it. Let's do it your way instead. And you know what, that, when that happens enough, you know what the world says? They said, oh my word, we've never seen anything like this before. I, I, mean, I mean, that's not how it's done in our house. That's not how it's done down at the, down at the office. That's not how, how it's done in our neighborhood. No, we shout at each other and we fight with one another and whoever's the strongest wins out. And yet here people are freely laying down their arms and they're just submitting to one another and, they're, and they like each other and they love one another and they're good with one another. This faith that they have must be real because we don't see it like this anywhere else. So it makes a difference. It matters. This idea of unity and oneness, it makes a tremendous, tremendous difference and when, when we live this way and when we're faithful to give out the gospel, oh, listen, what happens? Many, many will believe on him. I say thirdly, he prayed. Last prayer request, he prayed for us. You know what he prayed for? He prayed for a reunion with us. Would you look in verse 24? Father, I will that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jim Hill wrote these familiar words to a song that we love to sing. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. You know how much, you know how much a glorious day that will be? That Jesus prayed for it to come fast. He said, Lord, I want this day to come Those that believe on me, I want them to be where I am. And I want to be with them so they can behold my glory. So that they can see me in all of my glory. So that we could be together in that place that you're preparing for each and every one of us. Do you long for that day? Isn't it encouraging to know that he longs for it too? 
Isn't it great to know that sometimes you go to visit somebody and you feel like you're sort of, sort of a, an inconvenience? Like, you know, we're coming and they're just sort of putting off this vibe. All right, well, I have to clear my calendar and I got to clean my house and I got to... And then, and then there's some people who go to their house and, I mean, they roll out the red carpet. I mean, they, they get gifts and they have a little room set up just for... I mean, and it is, a, it is a big deal. I mean, they're standing outside waiting for you on the front porch. You know, in some respects, that's what Jesus does for us. He's waiting for us. He's just waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the Father to, to say, it's time. It's time to blow that trumpet. And when that trumpet sounds, oh, there's going to be a glad reunion. A, a, a reunion so glad that Jesus said, Lord, Lord, I just want it to be now. I just want it to be now. Some of you, some of you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you have loved ones on the other side and you want nothing more. You want nothing more than for that trumpet to sound so that there can be a reunion someday. What a day, glorious day that will be. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.